God bless you, and welcome again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We have presently begun looking at part five of this 12-part Bible study series. <clears throat> As always, I want to mention that the notes and audio recordings for all of these studies are available in a variety of ways. You can go to our website, which is new-life-ministries.org, and search for the notes and or audio recordings there for download. Uh, you can also listen live to the Bible studies, either by telephone or on the Internet at MixLR.com, following the broadcast name New Life Ministries. You can also subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast and get all of the notes and audio recordings as they become available uh, automatically sent to your smartphone or other device. Okay, here we go. We've come to page 71, if you are following along in the notes. We began last time uh, opening up this fifth part in the series, which covers chapters 6 and 7 in the book of Acts. And we've entitled this part 5, The Choosing of the Seven. And we explained that last time, that in the church of Jerusalem, which as far as we know, for the first 10 to 15 years after the day of Pentecost, was restricted to Jerusalem. It was a Jewish church in Jerusalem. It's only when we get into Acts 8 and beyond that the gospel goes to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the apostles recommended to the church that they choose out seven men uh, whom they could entrust with the responsibility of waiting on tables and seeing that all of the widows were given their daily distribution of food. And <clears throat> this is generally understood to be the first selection of deacons. That's actually what they were. They were table waiters. That's what deacon means in the original Greek. And we're going to look more deeply at one of those seven tonight. He's actually the first one mentioned in the list in Acts 6 verse 5. Uh, I'll read this again. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, we're going to look much more carefully at the first man in that list, that being Stephen. And we pick it up in the very next verse, Acts 6. Uh, we want to read from verse 8 to verse 15. And again, we are now on page 71 in the notes. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, we've been seeing as we've moved along in the book of Acts, uh, something that's been kind of building. Each time there's a new wave of revival, a new miracle, uh, many souls saved, the church grows, multiplies, enlarges. It seems every so often there's a growth spurt like that. There's also an attack. There's an opposition, and particularly opposition from the Jewish establishment, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, and uh, those in authority over the Jewish people. And we saw uh, not too long ago, because of jealousy, because of envy primarily, these men were motivated to keep attacking the apostles and the early church. And it has been building each time from initially just a one-night stand in the jail, and then they were released, to longer times of imprisonment, until finally, last time we encountered this in chapter 5, the Jewish leaders were for the first time so furious and so angry, uh, they went beyond just threatening the Jewish, I'm sorry, the Christian leaders and apostles. This time, they wanted to put them to death. And that was a new shift, that they were now actually coming to a point, a breaking point, in their anger and jealousy and fury, where they were contemplating killing these apostles and these Christians that were now being called the way. Well, we've now reached the breaking point, and Stephen will indeed be the first martyr in the early church. Stephen will be the first Christian leader put to death for his faith by these angry <clears throat> Jewish leaders. Now, in the text we've just read, we find some amazing things about this man, Stephen. By no coincidence, Stephen and Philip, in that order, are listed first and second in the seven names that are brought before the apostles uh, earlier in this chapter. It seems that even before we come to this point, there was something about Stephen and Philip that made them stand out, even amongst the others. Now remember, all seven of them had to meet certain qualifications. They had to be men of good reputation. They had to be good witnesses. They had to have a good Christian testimony. They had to be full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. NIV says, known to be full of the Holy Spirit. Well, apparently there was never any question about Stephen. That's why he's at the top of the list. And that's repeated again here in verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. Put that along with something else that is added when his name is first listed in verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So he's full of faith, he's full of God's grace, he's full of God's power, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. As evidenced by what it says next, he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. We will follow this same thread in chapter 8 when we look more closely at Philip, another one of these deacons. Philip also had a very powerful ministry, way beyond just delivering food to the widows. He had a powerful 
ministry also accompanied with miraculous signs and wonders. So, these are the only two deacons mentioned in Acts 6 that we know very much about. And these two definitely had ministries that went way beyond what, were they, what they were originally chosen to do. Now, it says Stephen did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Interestingly enough, Stephen is the first man mentioned in the book of, of Acts, other than the apostles, having performed miracles. You can look it up carefully. Every other instance up to this point where miracles, signs, or wonders were performed, it was always done by the apostles. But now, we're not specifically told that Stephen was an apostle. There's no reason for us to believe that. Um, he was a deacon full of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, when we study the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not only are these gifts for apostles and deacons, they're for all of us. Every Spirit-filled believer should have this testimony of being full of God's grace, full of power, and doing wonders and miraculous signs. Jesus said, these signs will follow, he didn't say apostles, these signs will follow them that believe. They will speak in tongues, they will lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover, etc. So, we don't know if anything else had happened in Stephen's life or ministry. There, again, the scriptures are silent if there was any kind of an ordination making him something more than a deacon, there's no reason for us to believe that. We just believe that he was moving in the Holy Spirit, and as he went about his daily responsibilities of serving the widows, he was preaching the gospel, he was laying hands on the sick, he was casting out demons, he was doing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And of course, verse 9, opposition arose. Kind of a, kind of a very similar refrain now that we're learning over and over and over. God moves in power, opposition, either arrest or you're called in for questioning, you're threatened, or in this case, worse, happens. Verse 9, it says, Opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and Asia. <clears throat> These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Remember, two of the three qualifications to be a deacon, they had to be full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. Man, did this come in handy now for Stephen. He needed that wisdom and he needed the fullness of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit within him and the wisdom that the Spirit was giving to Stephen, he was able to stand against every argument, every lie, every challenge that these Jewish uh, opponents were leveling at him. And the opposition was fierce. They were arguing and debating against everything that Stephen was trying to do, but they could not stand. They could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Now, it's not too important for our purposes, but the freedmen, I think they're called the libertines in some of the translations, <clears throat> these are thought to be Jews from different parts of the world. Some of them are mentioned from Cyrene, 
which was a city in Africa. Alexandria was a seaport in Egypt. Cilicia and Asia were probably parts of Asia Minor. These were all possibly Jews who had once been Roman slaves, and they've now been freed. That's why they're called freedmen, or libertines. They've been freed from their slavery to the Romans. And anything I've been able to find about them indicates they had a reputation of being very zealous for their Judaism. So these were zealots. They were very zealous Jews, and it didn't take them long seeing and listening to Stephen to rise up in opposition against him. And with all of their zeal for their religion, they were no match for Stephen. They could not stand against the anointing, the wisdom, the grace, and the power that was upon this man. How we should all pray to have this same testimony after our name. Now Stephen, put your name in his place. Now Wayne, now Joe, now Mary, a man or a woman, full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people, and whoever was opposing him or her, they could not stand up against his wisdom, her wisdom, or the spirit by whom he or she spoke. Known to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace, full of power. He was irresistible. And, as often happens, both in religious debates, and certainly you can see this all the time in modern politics, when you can't win the argument, you can't really win the debate on the basis of the facts, then you have to use a different strategy. And so, unable to win this debate, the freedmen, in a desperate move, and I want to, I want to underline that word desperate. These guys have gotten desperate. They can't, they can't argue against Stephen. They can't beat him in their debates. So now they have to move to a different strategy. They secretly hire some false witnesses. They bribed them, paid them some money under the table, and got them to accuse him. And we're going to look carefully at the different charges that they brought against him, because he's going to answer every single one of those charges in the speech that he gives. But basically, these <clears throat> thugs, these false witnesses, were hired to accuse him of blasphemy against Moses and God. And pretty soon, Stephen, like the apostles in previous chapters, is dragged in before the Sanhedrin. This is starting to get really old. And, you know, after Gamaliel warned these guys, don't mess with these fellows. If this thing is of God, you will not be able to stop them and you'll actually find yourselves fighting against God. They still didn't get it. So they call another big council meeting, and they call Stephen in for questioning before the Sanhedrin. He's charged with speaking against Moses, speaking against the law, speaking against the temple, and even blaspheming God, saying that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and change all the customs that Moses had handed down to the Israelites. Actually, if you study this carefully, it's very, very similar to what happened in Jesus' arrest and his trial. That also employed false witnesses and accusations of blasphemy, etc. Very similar. Not a whole lot new going on here. And... As I mentioned, in both religious circles and certainly in the political realm, uh, there's a term that you may have heard called ad hominem. Ad hominem. It's a Latin expression which literally means to the man. And it's a short form of the full phrase argumentum 
ad hominem, which basically means uh, if you can't win the argument, then take the argument to the man. What do we mean by that? Well, if you can't beat your opponent on the basis of facts and substance, then you attack him, attack his character, attack his motive. Politicians do this all the time. When they can't really defend their policy, they attack the attacker. Rather than try to put forth a reasonable explanation and proof of their particular stand or their particular policy, they just start slandering and attacking the character of the person who is challenging their position. So they couldn't win the argument against Stephen. So now they have to <clears throat> they have to resort <clears throat> excuse me. They have to resort to false accusations, false witnesses, accusing him of blasphemy and all kinds of other stuff. So they had no real substance to use against him, so they had to try to attack his character. It actually gets humorous at this point, because in verse 15, it says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. What did they see? And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of these Jewish leaders, and let me remind you that back in verse 7, Acts, same chapter, chapter 6, verse 7, we read this. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You know, if I'm one of the priests that's still in this Sanhedrin, and a lot of my friends have already left the priesthood to become Christians, and all of Jerusalem is now abuzz with the name Jesus Christ, and large masses of people are getting saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm sitting there in this council, again, attacking Stephen, not because I have any substance against what he's saying, but out of fear and jealousy, I'm trying to falsely accuse him. And here I am, and I'm looking across the table, and there sits Stephen, and his face is glowing like an angel. Wouldn't you think that some of these guys would really start to question, oops, we should have listened to what Gamaliel told us. He warned us to leave these guys alone, because if this was God, we would not be able to stop them, and we would actually find ourselves fighting against God. And here the man they're accusing of being so evil, what's happening? He's shining like an angel. God has a sense of humor. This, this whole thing is really getting good. And some of them maybe were starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know. But here they are, um, <clears throat> interrogating, questioning, challenging Stephen, and all they can see is this angelic countenance, this look of an angel on his face. No doubt, as we're about to see in the coming verses, no doubt Stephen was gazing right into the face of Jesus Christ, and as we read in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, his face was reflecting some of the glory from the very face of Jesus Christ for his Jewish attackers to behold. Now, in Stephen's response, remember, he has been charged, and let's read the list 
of the charges. We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. We've heard him speaking against this holy place, against the temple, and against the law, the law of Moses. We have heard him saying that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So, when he's called in for questioning, they bring all of these charges before him. You know, basically, all right, Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? What's your defense? Well, he gives a beautiful, exquisite response in Acts chapter 7. And I think we have time to do this tonight. I'm actually going to read the whole speech just as he would have given it. He didn't take any breaks to go get a drink of water, so I'm not going to take any break. We're going to read in Acts 7. This goes right into Acts 7 now. From 1 to 53. And I want you, as I'm reading it, to try to imagine the tension in the room with all these Jewish leaders. They've brought him in for questioning. They brought these charges of blasphemy and speaking against Moses, speaking against the law, basically being some kind of a heretic. And in this speech, and I did a little bit of research beforehand, it's about 1,200 words in the speech. And I don't know how long it's going to take me now, but I think I timed it. It takes about six or seven minutes to deliver the whole speech. And I've heard some people say, if he just changed a few words toward the end of the speech, he could have saved his life. Just It's just a few phrases at the very end of the speech that really got him in trouble. All he had to do was modify a few of those words, and everything would have been fine. The rest of the speech is beautiful, is actually a beautiful historical account of Israel. And in this speech, in this speech, he gives a demonstration of his thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, the whole history of Israel. This guy knew his Bible. He knew his history. And of course, as he's giving this speech, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is giving him the words. Holy Spirit is giving him uh, the anointing. Holy Spirit is filling him with wisdom as he gives this speech. And I want you to imagine being one of these Jewish attackers or opponents as he gives this speech. I'm sure they were at first amazed with his fluent knowledge of Israel, the Jewish people, and their history. Something else that comes through in the speech is his great love for the nation of Israel, his respect for Moses, for the law, for the temple, and remember, he's refuting a lot of these fake charges that he was blaspheming Moses or God or the temple, none of which were true. And notice also how he so masterfully uses the stories of Joseph and Moses. These were two deliverers or saviors, I'll use that word lightly, deliverers or saviors that God raised up for the people of Israel, both of whom were rejected by their own people. He uses those two examples to point to the fact that they are now rejecting their real deliverer, their real savior, whom God had sent for them, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And basically, he's going to show them what they've always done in the past is reject God. 
reject the saviors that he gave them, and turn against the very ones that were being sent to help them. And he will finally uh, bring his indictment against them that they're no different than all of the fathers previous to them. They always resist the Holy Spirit. Okay, here we go. Starting in Acts 7, from verse 1, all the way down to verse 53. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth, Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So far, so good. I'm sure there were no complaints. Great speech so far. Verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So far, so good. All good Bible history. Verse 17. At that, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people. Notice how Stephen is including himself with the Israelites, our people, and oppressed our forefathers, by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. <clears throat> Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. 
he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. Though the angel who appeared to him in the bush, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. So far, all Stephen is doing is summarizing Bible history. He is starting to land a couple of jabs, both about Joseph and the way he was sold and rejected by his own brothers. And then it gets a little clearer here, where we just read, <clears throat> this is the same Moses whom they, the Israelites, had rejected. So he's now pointed to two saviors or deliverers that God himself raised up for Israel, both of whom were rejected. In the first case, we're told why. Because of jealousy. Now it starts to get a little more interesting. From verse 37. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy 18, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, <clears throat> we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Now, it's starting to get a little hotter in the room. Starting to get a little bit uncomfortable. Because this is starting to change from a history lesson. Stephen's going somewhere with this speech. He's starting to show a pattern from the beginning, in the hearts of these Jewish people, a tendency to always reject God, to always refuse to obey God, to always reject the very ones that God raises up and sends to help them, they turn against them and turn away from them. And so now... Stephen's going to start to quote from the prophets concerning this backsliding, this turning away in the hearts from God. 
Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So, because of idolatry, Stephen now points to the next phase in Israel's history, their exile into Babylon, again, because of their repeated stubbornness, refusal to obey God, and this continual tendency to worship idols and false gods rather than worship the true God. Verse 44. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says. Now, we're not going to pick apart every verse here, but many of these are quotes from the Old Testament, and if you have a good Bible with references, it'll give you all those notes where each and every one of these quotes is coming from. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool, What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? This is coming from Isaiah. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Now, take a deep breath. He's still just citing scripture, Old Testament scripture, and summarizing the history of Israel, but he's starting to point out the pattern of rebellion, disobedience, unwillingness, and worship of idols. He was charged with blaspheming Moses, blaspheming the law, blaspheming the temple. He's done nothing of the sort and any of the things he set up until now. But oh, here it comes. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. These verses that I just read are the ones in question. All Stephen had to do was leave this last little bit out, and everything would have been fine. But this is where he's been leading with his whole speech. He wants to show this pattern from the beginning has been prevalent in the hearts of the Jewish people, stiff-necked, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You're just like Joseph's. <clears throat> excuse me. You're just like Joseph's brothers, who were envious of him, jealous of him, rejected him, sold him into slavery. You're just like all the. Uh, Israelites who rejected Moses and his leadership, you're just like them. You are just like your fathers, and here is the heart of the whole matter. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Wow. What an indictment. You always, not just once in a while, you always do this. There's something in you that just seems to be anti-Holy Spirit. It always resists. 
Whatever the Holy Spirit's doing, whatever the Holy Spirit is saying, you're against it. Every prophet that God has ever sent, you persecuted him. You did it to Jeremiah and right on down the list. You even killed a lot of them. And basically, Stephen is almost saying, come on, do it to me next. You did it to Jesus. And here's the, the final stinger. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. The righteous one is Jesus, the Messiah. But you betrayed and murdered him. We saw that was a common thread in a lot of the sermons that were given up until this point, particularly from Peter to these Jewish leaders. You killed him. You betrayed him. You crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. So here it is. Now you have betrayed <clears throat> and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. In a masterful way, Stephen basically blows away every single false accusation that was brought against him. He wasn't blaspheming Moses. He wasn't blaspheming the law. He wasn't saying anything about changing the customs of Moses or saying anything bad about the temple. He turns the whole thing around on these Jewish leaders and says, you guys have a problem. You're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in hearts and in ears, you're just like all of your fathers, you resist the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Stephen, in these 1,200 or so words, he summarized the whole history of Israel from Joseph right on through. Actually, from Abraham right on through. And he shows a pattern that history repeats itself. And the pattern goes something like this. Whenever they were confronted with God's word, with God's message, they didn't understand what he was saying. Whenever he urged them to live at peace, they refused to listen. Whenever God sent them a deliverer or a savior, like Joseph, or Moses, or finally, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, they reject him. Whenever they've been delivered miraculously from bondage or some other evil, as they were out of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and on numerous other occasions, they very quickly resort to worshipping useless idols. They prefer idols to the true, worshipping, worshipful, mighty God that wanted to be worshipped by them, they turned to idols. Useless, vain idols instead. Basically, what Stephen did here is bring an indictment against not just the Jewish people, you and, you and I are in here too. This is human nature. This is fallen human nature. This is why the Bible says, there's no good thing in us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. This is not just an indictment on these Jewish leaders. If you read further into the New Testament, Paul is going to help us see every one of us is in the same boat. God speaks to us, what do we do? We reject it. God tries to send us a Savior, a Deliverer. Many of us spend our whole life working against Him, running away from him, rebelling against anything and everything he tells us to do. It's human nature. Rebellion, being ungrateful, and worshiping anything and everything except for God, because we're made to worship. God created us as worshiping human beings. We're made in the image of God. We need a God to worship. So if we don't worship the true God, we have to make one. 
We have to find another one to worship. And after this final indictment, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Um, wow. I can see some people in the room getting really hot now. Really hot. And they must have really been offended by the fact that he tries to uh, charge them with being just like their fathers who rejected Joseph, who rejected Moses, because now their big hero is Moses. Oh, we love Moses. They, he's saying you would have rejected him too had you been there. And <clears throat> let's recap the charges that Stephen was asked to give an answer to. He was charged with blaspheming Moses and God. Stephen's response is, you guys rejected Moses, you refused to obey him. Moses predicted the coming Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18, he spoke about the prophet. You not only rejected the prophet that Moses predicted would come, you crucified him. You murdered him. And you're accusing me of blaspheming Moses? Huh. Better think again. The other charge was that Stephen had spoken against the temple and against the law, saying that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and all the customs of Moses. What's Stephen's response? Israel had the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness, but even then, what do they do? They start worshipping false gods. Molech and Raphan and all these heavenly bodies and weird gods. And then he quotes both Solomon and Isaiah, who stated that God doesn't dwell in man-made temples. God's not interested in a man-made temple. And so they weren't even listening to their prophets. And here they're charging Stephen with speaking against the temple. Stephen also showed them how the law of Moses that he had supposedly blasphemed or spoken against, they've never honored. The Jews have never honored the law of Moses. They never did, they never will. Paul makes that clear in the book of Romans. The law wasn't given to make people righteous, it was given to show how sinful they are. They had stubbornly refused to follow Moses. And in his final indictment, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Stiff-necked literally means um, obstinate, stubborn, unyielding. Um, it actually comes from the idea of putting a yoke around the neck of an oxen. Oxen that are stiff-necked, they refuse to let you put the yoke around their neck. They're independent, they're, they're self-willed, they're unyielding, they want to do it their way. Does that sound at all familiar to any of us? <laughs> if you're at all honest, you'll have to admit, man, have I, have I had some of that in my life, and maybe I still do. We can see it in others, but we don't like to admit it's in us. Stubborn. I want it my way. I've always done it my way. I'm always going to do it my way. Nobody's telling me how to do this. Nobody's going to give me any orders. I know what's best. Uncircumcised. Now, they all knew what circumcision was. They were all physically circumcised in their flesh. They were quite proud of that. Oh, we're circumcised Jews. <clears throat> That's not what he said. He said uncircumcised in heart and in ears. And we don't have time to look it up, but there are actually references 
in the Old Testament scriptures that uh, Stephen was referring to that talk about those very things. Circumcision of the heart and circumcision of the ears. So even in the Old Testament, God was hinting at the fact that just physical cutting away of the flesh wasn't what he was interested in. He was interested in a circumcision of the heart, Deuteronomy 30, and a circumcision of the ears. I believe it's in Jeremiah 4. But you are uncircumcised both in your hearts and in your ears. What does that mean? It means hard, calloused. Your hearts are hard. They're covered over with scales, real thick skin. Your, your, your conscience isn't tender anymore. Your hearts are hard. It's hard for me to even speak to you. It's hard for me to bring you to repentance. Uncircumcised in hearts and, of course, ears, they were dull of hearing. They just didn't want to listen to God. This goes all the way back to Mount Sinai. Moses, we don't want to listen. We don't want to hear God talk anymore. You go up and find out what he has to say, and you report it to us. If we listen to God anymore, we're all going to die. We don't want to hear him. It's been that way ever since. Hard of hearing, hard of heart. And now... The indictment of all indictments, and remember, the church age, we saw, began on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We said at the beginning of this whole study, we could actually call the acts, the acts of the Holy Spirit, because that's one way of looking at the whole book. Well, man, are these guys missing the boat. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Everything about this new movement was formed and founded through the outpouring, the moving of the Holy Spirit. You're resisting everything that the Holy Spirit's doing. You've been attacking it ever since day one. And your prophet, Joel, is the one that predicted this mighty outpouring. And you're still resisting it. It's not man you're resisting. You're resisting God. Now, remember what I mentioned a little earlier tonight. If I'm one of these Jewish leaders sitting there, and the whole time I've been looking at Stephen, Stephen, his face looks like an angel. He's just finished this amazing speech, and he brings it to a close saying, you guys are resisting God's spirit. Wouldn't the words of Gamaliel be coming back again into my mind? Uh Uh-oh. Gamaliel said, be careful with these guys. Leave them alone. Don't lay a hand on them. Just let them do their thing. If this is of man, it'll come to nothing. But if this is of God, you will not be able to stop them you will find yourselves fighting against God. Guess what? That's what Stephen just told them. You're fighting God. You're resisting God. You're resisting the Holy Spirit of God. This isn't about Peter, James, John, or Stephen. You're fighting against God now. And he leveled this accusation as well. Was there ever a prophet... Your fathers did not persecute. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Now, I hate to leave you hanging, but I think you know how the story ends. And we're going to save that for next time. But um, I've already told you how it does end. Stephen's going to be the first martyr in the church. And something to think about between now and next time we come back to look at this. Such a, such a gifted orator, such a gifted man, 
let's remember, he was full of faith, full of God's grace, full of power, doing great wonders and miraculous signs. How the church needed a leader like this. Why, oh why, is God going to allow him to be sacrificed as the first martyr? Well, I'll give you a hint. God doesn't give us an answer. He doesn't have to. God does whatever he pleases. And God acts on a level of wisdom that we can't even comprehend. And certainly he knew what he was doing in allowing, of all people, this gem of a Christian to be the first martyr sacrificed at the hands of these furious, jealous, angry, threatened Jewish leaders. Their position is really being threatened now. Many of the priests have left the priesthood to become Christians. They've been warned by their top leader, Gamaliel, to stop what they're doing, and they're still doing it, and they're really going to cross the line now. And they just can't seem to help themselves. There's, there's some demon that keeps driving them. The more God tries to speak to them, and the more he tries to convince them, even through these words of Stephen, you're hard-hearted. You're resisting me. You're resisting my Holy Spirit. Rather than repent, they become all the more furious. And they will now actually gnash their teeth as they stone Stephen to death. But more about that next time. We'll have to stop at this point and pick it up here. Let's close in prayer together. Father, I thank you for the Stephens, for the Phillips, for the faithful men and women that you raise up in the church who love you, who love your word, those whom you've called and chosen with very special tasks. You fill them with faith, fill them with the Holy Spirit, you fill them with wisdom, and you use them in great and marvelous ways doing mighty signs and wonders. God, we thank you for the testimony of Stephen. We thank you, O oh God, for the marvelous way that you empowered and enabled him even to answer the challenges that faced him when he was brought before the Sanhedrin. And God, we see the fulfillment of your promise that you spoke even to the original disciples, when they were called to trial, they didn't need to worry about what they were going to say, because your Holy Spirit would give them the words. And surely, it was your Holy Spirit speaking through the mouth of Stephen, convicting these jealous, envious, threatened leaders who had always resisted your Holy Spirit. Oh God, not a whole lot has changed today. There is still a great resistance in the religious establishment. Those that feel threatened, those that might feel that they're losing their hold, their control over the people, their position is being threatened. They will resort to all kinds of evil to attack not people, but to resist the Holy Spirit. God, we pray in these last days there would be a mighty move of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, those who might dare persecute, those who might dare fight against it, they would understand they're not fighting against men. They're fighting against God. And Lord, you give us great confidence that when we're about our Father's business, when we're doing the will of God, when we're serving you, and honoring you, and simply doing what you've called us to do. No power on earth, no power in hell, no power of darkness can stop us. For they will not be fighting against men, they will be fighting against God himself. Father, we thank you that you're with us. We thank you, O oh God, that you're building your church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Every power of darkness, every satanic power is under our feet. You saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And you told us that you've given us power and authority over all the power of the enemy and that nothing will in any way hurt us. But we can trample on serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. Thank you for making us a glorious, spirit-filled, triumphant, more than conquering church in the earth in these last days. You will finish the good work that you've started. And Lord, even though we see thousands of martyrs every year now in the world, Christians, even children, young people who are losing their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ, let it encourage us to be all the more bold, all the more firm and convinced in our faith. Help us, dear God. Give us grace and strength to stand firm to the end, just as Stephen and the others in the early church did. We give you thanks and praise for your word. Help us to continue to seek you, honor you, and walk with you until the very end.